BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. Yesterday, U.S. gymnast Sunisa Lee won all-around gold as fellow gymnast and defending champion Simone Biles celebrated in the stands following her withdrawal from the event earlier this week. We'll catch up on the big news and the debates around women's uniforms and athlete mental health in the first big week of the Olympics. And we hear how the Olympians with Bay Area ties are faring, including in mountain biking, softball, and swimming. Joining us first is Elliot Almond, a sports reporter for the Bay Area News Group. Elliot, as we mentioned in the uh, intro, uh, California accounts for more than one in five Olympians. Um, how are some of our notable Bay Area athletes doing? Well, good morning, Katie. Uh, this is a little uh, different than California government that you usually cover, right? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but we'll have, hopefully we can have some fun here. Um, <laughs> I yeah. prefer it. No. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to answer your question, um, it, it's uh, uh, in my, I care, I keep a list for all these past Olympics of Bay Area athletes. And my list is more than a hundred with a uh, hundred people with ties to the Bay Area who who are in Tokyo, and broadly, you know, how are they doing? You know, it's always a mixed bag. It's an Olympics. It's competition. So not everybody wins, and um, and then some do. Uh, some notables. Uh, it's the first week, so we we got to go to the pool and talk about swimming. Katie Ledecky entered these games as the greatest freestyle swimmer, women's freestyle swimmer in history. Um, and, you know, she lost her first two races, uh, which probably surprised a lot of people, but not entirely her, I think. And she's had, in my book, an amazing Olympics. I have a story in today's paper, you know, just sort of reflecting on how even a silver medal for her is, 
incredible and how, how she did it. Um, last night, uh, Ryan uh, Murphy of Cal um, got the silver in the 200 backstroke. That's an event that he won in Rio in 2016. And he set off fireworks by making general accusations about, uh, about swimming and performance enhancing drugs. So there's controversies that happen involving Bay Area athletes all over the place. Um, in mountain biking, because you mentioned it, we had two or three women. Uh, Kate Courtney of Marin, she learned to ride on Mount Tamalpais. As we know, that's the birthplace of mountain biking. Um, and Haley Battens over in Santa Cruz, a huge mountain biking community. Um, lots and lots of mud on a rainy course. They got both Americans were caught behind and Kate Courtney finished 15th. Haley Batten did a little better at 9th, but they were both uh, supremely disappointed and had expected more out of them. Now there's, like I said, there was more than 100 um, <laughs> athletes. Let, let, me, let me talk about one more from Danville, a mm -hmm. Stanford uh, woman by the name of Maggie Steffens. She has been regarded as the greatest water, women's water polo player in history. Last night, she got, um, she surpassed the Olympic record for the most goals. So she's now the record leader. She's the highest scoring goalkeeper, not goalkeeper, highest scoring athlete in women's water polo history at the Olympics. And the U.S. women are chock full of Bay Area um, players, most notably from Stanford, and should do well. On the men's side, since we're talking water polo, the U.S. men were leading um, Italy, one of the great teams of the world, one of the favored teams, um, but came back and, I mean, ended up faltering at the end. That was a group play game. It doesn't mean they're not going to play for the medals yet. Um, but both of those programs, chock full of Bay Area athletes, are doing really well. And in beach volleyball, Stanford's Alex Kleinman, she should be playing. We expect her to be playing for the gold medal with her partner, April Ross of uh, Orange County. Um, and they're doing well in group play so far. And I'll stop there because I could go on and on and take the whole hour. Well, you know, I have to say I have I have a special um, af affinity for water polo. My brother played at Cal, knows a lot of people who went, it's getting to be a long time ago, but still <laughs> knows a couple people who went to the Olympics. So it's always fun to see the water polo teams do well. Um, how did the men's rowing eight do? I understand that there are some Bay Area Olympic uh, athletes on that team. Yeah, just for the just so readers uh, uh, readers, excuse me, I'm thinking what I do. Just so the um, <laughs> listeners can understand, the Bay Area uh, is actually the center for for a number of of these Olympic teams, including the men's national rowing program for the fours and the eights. So those particular those two boats, um, they're all they live here. You know, and they go to your stores and they go to your gas stations and they're just living among you and training their tails off. Um, the men finished fourth yesterday in the final. Um, that was an improvement over uh, finishing fifth the past two Olympics. They hadn't won a medal since Athens. Um, or maybe I could be wrong. I think they won a medal in um Beijing, actually. So, sorry, there's just so much information, and I've been up since three covering the women's <laughs> soccer team. 
But I was um, just going to ask you about soccer. Uh, that spoiler alert. Um, that was a down to the wire game, huh? Yeah. It was incredible. The U.S. came out so strong. They led 2-1 to one at halftime, and they looked really good. The, the Dutch rebounded beautifully, and then it was game on. Um, the world's greatest goal scorer is a Dutch woman, uh, Miedema, Vivian Miedema, and she scored two goals, and um, it took some incredible saves by the U.S. goalkeeper, uh, Alicia Neher, she saved a penalty kick in the game, nine minutes left. That should have won it right then. Um, she stopped Miedema in, in the first overtime with a, with a sure goal. And then in the penalty shootout, she stops Miedema and another Dutch player. And the U.S. wins and advances to the semifinals 4-2 to two on penalty kicks. I want to bring in um, Amira Rose Davis now. She's an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University, also co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down. Amira, thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. So I'd love to get your take on the Olympics so far. What are your what are your broad thoughts? How's it going? Yeah, it's a mess. Uh, It's good and a mess uh, all at once. Of course, the lead up to it was a mess. It's the pandemic games, as I'm calling them. Um, So there's obviously, you know, um, stories that are running through the games that are just perplexing. Um, And so then you have brilliant moments like Suni's uh, uh, win last night concurrently with, you know, um, COVID rates and unmasked athletes and, Uh, And then you have thrilling games like today that are equally thrilling and infuriating because I have no idea why they won't shore up their right side. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of us are getting up really early and taking in all of the complexities of the games um, and and then dissecting them all through the day and doing it again. And track hasn't even started yet. I feel like they've been it's been a year in these games and (laughs) we're just we're just hitting halfway. I know it feels like it's been going on for a while. Um, <laughs> we're talking about week one of the to- Tokyo Olympics with Elliot Allman, a sports reporter at the Bay Area News Group, and Amira Rose Davis, uh, assistant professor at Penn State University and co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down. Amira, I want to get your take, of course, on one of the biggest stories to come out of the Olympics so far, and that is the situation um, with Simone Biles, gymnast Simone Biles. Uh, As we mentioned, she withdrew from some portions of her competition earlier this week. Uh, Tell us, you sum up for us, why did she feel the need to withdraw from these events? Yeah, absolutely. So Simone is dealing with uh, what gymnasts call a a case of the twisties. Um, It's also common in like dance, diving, um, things that have your equilibrium all off as you're twisting and rotating through um, through the air. And basically what it is, is that... Um, the tricks that gymnasts do, a lot of times when you're conditioning, you're, you're getting to a place where it's muscle memory. Um, and one of the things that happens with this phenomenon is that you you really start to not trust yourself, you trust your body, and you start to overthink. And so if you revisit the first vault that Simone threw, the only vault that she threw in, in, in the actual um, competition, uh, she bulks out of that move before completing it. She was supposed to do two and a half rotations. She did one and a half. It's hard to discern that if you're a kind of lay person. Um, and it's also hard because she lands on her feet, but that's actually just a testament to how gifted she is um, because she had no idea where she was. She had no idea where she was in the air. 
um, at all. And and you can see if you actually slow it down that she, her head, like she has no bearing. And so that's the dangerous part of this. This is a sport that is literally in the air and flipping over things. And the risk for injury is really severe. And for her, it was also about the risk to her teammates. Um, she's been particularly... I think frustrated by um, takes that somehow are trying to paint her as selfish or, you know, when, when one of her predominant concerns was the fact that like that vault that she did was a very low scoring vault that put the team in a two point hole in gymnastics. That's huge on what should have been their stronger event. And so the decision she made was both about her health and safety, but also the betterment of the team. This is why you have four, uh, people on the team. Um, and she was like, I'm not going to be able to perform at the level that you need me to perform to ensure that the team does well. And moreover, if I am trying to push through it, I'm also going to put myself at risk because I, I'm just have no bearings and do not trust myself to land on my feet, um, at all. And, and that's, that's what went into her decision. Um, and it's a day by day process. So each day she continues to get back in the practice gym and with lots of padding and try to work through it. And she makes those calls. So of course she then pulled out of the individual all around as well. And we're still waiting to see what happens for the event, um, finals. And we're going to talk about this much more throughout the hour. First, I want to invite our listeners to weigh in. What do you love about the Olympics? What would you change about it? And what was your reaction to this week's past controversies? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. We're talking about week one of the Tokyo Olympics with Elliot Almond, a sports reporter for the Bay Area News Group, Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University and co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down. And we're also joined now by Kurt Streeter, a sports columnist with The New York Times. Kurt, I want to uh, go to you. Um you know, in American culture, speaking of the Simone Biles situation, I feel like we're trained so much to push forward, right, and to keep going. So that the notion that um, Simone Biles would pull out in the Olympics, I think it's hard for a lot of people to grasp. You know, people feel like this is her job. That's what she's trained to do. How do you get people to understand why she did what she did and how hard that decision must have been for her? Well, that had to be maybe the most uh, difficult decision that she's ever made. Uh, 
And it's an extremely important decision. I said, uh, I wrote this week that for all of her greatness and all of the medals that she's won, she's arguably the greatest gymnast of all time. This move, I, I believe, was the, most, it was the most important single thing she's ever done because she's elevated mental health and uh, mental health issues uh, on a stage that has, is the biggest stage in which, and the biggest athlete to ever really uh, talk about the, the, these issues, kind of all coming together at once. So, you know, all eyes were pointed on her going into these games. She was marketed as really the face of the games by NBC to the American audience. This was going to be, you know, the crowning achievement in her career. And I just think that, you know, obviously the pressure was unbelievably tremendous uh, for her. For and, and, you know, there's just a multiplicity of, of reasons why that might be the case. And one of them that I think that people sort of don't talk about much or has been sort of uh, forgotten in this is, hey, <laughs> we're in the middle of a pandemic. And <laughs> this is a period where all of us are really a, uh, more than a little bit frayed right now. And it's also been a time, I think, when a lot of athletes and a lot of just people all over the world have done quite a bit of soul searching over, over this last year and really figuring out priorities and, and thinking about, about um, you know, self in a way and self-care in a way that is that has never really you know that that we don't typically tend to do and then there the other uh, you know and the other factor in this is that, that you know last over the last year with the you know racial reckoning um with the me too coming out off the me too movement there's just uh and i think particularly for black black athletes and black uh, female athletes uh there's just a different sort of understanding and people are the athletes i think are seeing the world and their sport and themselves through through a different prism and feel, feeling emboldened to speak out about that yeah and to your point kurt we had a comment from carlos who says instead of being surrounded by fans and family during the shutdown olympic games simone was surrounded by usa gymnastics federation officers coaches coaches and staff that had failed to protect the teams when they needed protection most. If that doesn't trigger the twisties, I don't know what would. I want to go to a caller now. Uh, Suha Na in San Carlos, go ahead. Hi. Um, yeah, my comment is just that in I've participated in team sports and, and gymnastics, and I noticing Simone step back but not disappear and not hide in her hotel room and feel sorry for herself and instead be a cheerleader, be a coach, be the support, be present for her teammates. You could hear her yelling in the stands. That is a whole level of bravery and just confidence and love and support that I don't think gymnastics has ever seen. Yeah, thank you so much for that comment. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. If you have a, a thought or a question, you can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Larry writes, can you talk about the version of heroic that we saw with Carrie Strug vaulting in the Olympics decades ago? And this version of heroic we're seeing with Simone Biles and how the public should reconcile the two. Uh, Kurt, uh, yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, in 1996, we were all so impressed with Carrie Strug. And looking back on the videos now, especially when we know she didn't need to do that vault for the team to win their gold medal. I mean, it's 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 like stomach churning to watch that. 
Well, it is. And especially when we, when we also know the levels of emotional and physical abuse that, that uh, her and, and her teammates in, in the 1990s and, and many of the gymnasts, uh, you know, for years in U.S. gymnastics uh, had to go through um, with, with, with that coaching staff. So, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's fine to, to laud and to, um, to love seeing athletes pushing themselves physically and pushing, uh, pushing barriers physically. That's, that's one part of sports, no doubt. But I think it's just as fine and just as important that, that, we, rea that we realize, recognize, and give plaudits to people who also are saying, as uh, Simone did uh, just now, as Naomi Osaka, uh, Osaka did during the French Open, hey, you know, I've got to come first. My mental health right now has to come first. That's a whole other level. There's sort of, I think you can, I think you can have both. You can elevate both. Um, but certainly when we look at that 1996, at, at that video, that, that is, uh, that, that is, uh, there's, there's a lot of layers of complexity there. Let's put it that way. Right. Amira, what are your thoughts on that? Because it just seems like the sport or maybe maybe us as a society has evolved a bit uh, from when Carrie Strug was in the Olympics. Or maybe we haven't. I don't know what you think. Well, I think it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, I think that Kurt's absolutely right. If you watch that now, I mean, down to the point that she's carried off by Larry Nassar. Um, and it's inescapable that the kind of way that we think and have nostalgia about that moment cannot be uh, disentangled from what we know in terms of the institutional failures and the harm um, that was enacted. And I think that that is where we can see changes within the sport um, in terms of the fact that that's not Carrie's decision, right? Carrie, that wasn't, she wasn't in a place to have that kind of power and, and, and autonomy to make that call, even if it appears right at the time, like she did. And I think that what we're seeing now, and you can hear Simone say, I'm so glad I have a team around me that listens to me. Right. Um, and I think it connects to the fact that one of the things that Simone cited about coming back and doing this soul searching as, as Kurt is talking about during this pandemic year, going into these games, that one of the motivating factors to return, which in gymnastics, this is, you know, it's not a sport that has a, a super longevity component to it, um, was that she was the last survivor of Nasser and she felt very strongly that her going to the games made it much harder for U.S. gymnastics to try to move on or kind of turn a new leaf before survivors felt like the institution had adequately reckoned with and implemented um, effective changes across the board that the process wasn't done and her presence would prevent that process from being kind of wrapped up like it was. And so I think that that's one of the ways you see people coming into their voices, athletes coming into their voices and impacting the sport. But then absolutely just to wrap it up and go back to the kind of initial point that um, Kurt was making that it's also about us, absolutely. And these kind of things that we reach towards as like these pinnacle moments of sport, um, whether it's like Brett Favre's touchdowns after his, his father's death or 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 that moment in 96 or Carl Anthony Towns playing in the bubble in a COVID year and pandemic that took seven, eight of his family members. And there's a way in that we've packaged them into narratives as if it's like, this is, this is the, the ultimate sport moment. 
And I think that what this moment asks us to do is step back and say, well, why those, right? Which is not to say that that isn't a certain type of, perhaps not heroicism, but a certain type of um, impact and inspiration that tugs at you in a certain way. But why are those the moments that we valorize asking athletes to gladiate themselves physically and or mentally for what? Right. And I think that what Naomi Osaka, what Simone, um, what a lot of other athletes who are talking very openly about mental health are doing are offering a different model that you don't have to push through it at risk of, of life or limb or, or, or mentality. Um, and that that can be another option that we can also celebrate and hold up. Um, and, and I think that's really important. I like can... woman up. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go for Sorry. it, Kurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I can Go add too, I think what I what I love about this too is that they're forcing us to look at athletes at, at the whole person. So often in our society, and this is you know this is this is the fans, this is media, this is uh, sports organizers. We tend to we're, we we we've elevated uh, sports stars to the extent where we see them as almost like machines, as something otherworldly, as something that's you know not not realistic as to, to what they are. We only see a, we're, we elevate a portion of them and we don't, we don't recognize enough, in my opinion, um, the wholeness, the fullness of, of athletes, of the humanity of athletes in, 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 so, many, in so many cases. And I think that this, is, this has forced us to take, take a look at that, to take a look at that 360 degree view of, of these fellow human beings, fellow human travelers. <laughs> so uh, that's what, that's one of the things I just love about this. I think it's interesting because I feel like, you know, most people with a nine to five, right, probably see at a, you know, from a, a thousand mile view that athletes get paid to play a game and therefore, you know, they should play at any cost. Of course, you know, it, it, it doesn't always work that way. Obviously, as we're seeing, there's incredible amount of pressure. Uh, Elliot, I'd like to get your your take on this. I mean, do we need to change the way we look at athletes just because they play a you know quote unquote game for a job? Doesn't mean that that isn't that job isn't difficult at times. Thanks for thanks for asking. Uh, just to start, the, your other guests, uh, Kurt writes about this. Um, that's what I love so much about his work. And uh, Amida always, always brings these insights when journalists like me get a chance to talk to her about social issues. Um, And and I try my best. uh, I'm more interested in the grays, so I've always just been interested in people's lives. But uh, this isn't about me. You're talking general media. We're so fast-paced. I agree so much that we we look at these as a society. We look at these uh, athletes too much as sort of machines there for our entertainment. Um, we get mad at them if, if they mess up and, and our, our home team doesn't win. Um, that, you know, fan is short for fanatic, of course. Uh, I, I think that the conversation has been kick-started in such a profound way when you've got Simone Biles, as Kurt has already said, doing this on the biggest stage in real time, stopping in mid competition to say, folks, time to wake up. Um, Naomi uh, also has played a role, and there's, there's been many, many others. But you can see this conversation is the, is the talk of the Olympics. And it's just allowed other people. Um, Katie Ledecky had an incredible emotional moment the other night 
Um, I talked to her brother yesterday, and he was so happy to see his little sister, not little, but younger sister, um, show her true self to the public. I, I think things are going to change. Um, and when you've got people like Kurt writing about it and uh, a historian like Amita talking about it, uh, we're just, it's going to be a paradigm shift. And I want to be part of it as well. We'd love to hear what you have to think. Uh, what do you love about the Olympics? What would you change about it? And what's your reaction to the controversies that have gone on during these games? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, Susan writes, the Olympics were originally for amateurs, and it should return to that. Adding pros not only ups the pressure and personal exposure for the non-professional uh, athletes, but also puts them in the strange situation of, quote, almost pro to get funding for their training. Publicity and resulting pressures is only one system of a twisty in our culture. Uh, Amir, what do you think uh, of that, Amir? Do you, do you agree that, do we need to sort of change the way the Olympics are run? They are such a huge production these days. I mean, the Olympics have the the Olymp there's always been a vast gap between what the Olympics hope it is in its most kind of romanticized idealized form and then what it actually is even in the times of amateurism um and I think that certainly part of reconsidering the games and and like the pandemic in so many areas of our life has has kind of presented a moment to kind of lay bare the roots and and really reveal power and priorities and the fact that I think that we even kind of push forward with the pandemic games um, indicates, right, that there is there is a pursuit of profit infused into the Olympics. Uh, those TV revenues are really hard to walk away from. Um, that certainly has impacted, um, you know, how it's how it's manufactured and how it's put on. As one example, um, U.S. trials leading into the games, for instance, were happening in Oregon during the heat wave. Um, in the Pacific Northwest um, that y'all may have felt. Um, and while there was some shuffling of events, it was never shuffled too much that would impact primetime packaging and viewing. Um, and athletes that I talked to talked to me about still having burns on their legs from getting into start position on a scalding hot track. And that's a moment in which the health and safety of the athletes and the you know equity of the race or any of that, that is not that's clearly not the priority, but making it packageable and consumable is. And I think that that's perhaps, you know, that question makes me think of where we find ourselves. Cause I also think about, you know, no Olympics organizers. I think about people mobilizing in Tokyo um, who are saying, hey, we need to wait and we need to reconsider um, many of these things that, that, that we're just kind of pushing and steaming ahead on uh, whether it's about how much profit is in the games or even how, you know, they're awarded or where they're located. And so I think, you know, to just broaden it a little bit, that's absolutely conversations I would welcome and invite because just from little things like, uh, you know, I, I write about historic Olympics in like 1960, where they would take the tape and uh, fly it from Rome back to CBS headquarters in New York overnight, and then everybody would see it the next day. And then, of course, we used to have primetime as the only way to access it. And for the last few Olympic cycles, you know, 
folks like me and Elliot, right, we're getting up at three in the morning to, to watch it live. So what is the utility of primetime? That has changed. So if we can have conversations about that, we can have bigger ones as well. I want to get to Kurt Struder real quick because I know we have to let you go. Uh, Kurt, what is your response? How do you think we can sort of revamp or update the Olympics? Well, I think we just need the first thing we need to do is uh, keep asking some hard questions about the games. A lot of hard questions about the games. Everything from, uh, you know, where they should be held how they should be, uh, how it should be decided upon what cities and what countries they're, they're staged in. I mean, should, should we go and continue to have Olympics in, uh, in, in countries with really uh, ghastly uh, human rights records? Like, uh, you know, obviously some problem, many problems right now in China where the Winter Olympics are, are going to be held next January uh, and the Sochi Games in Russia. Uh, you know, what's the impact on local communities, which is oftentimes, uh, in, in almost all cases, has been terrible. Uh, you know, thinking of Rio, thinking of the Seoul Games in, in, in uh, 1988 and the displacement of thousands of, of local residents for the Games. Uh, right up to right now with Tokyo, we're heading into the Olympics right during a, during a pandemic uh, that is spiking in Japan and I population that's very vastly uh, unvaccinated and something like 70-80% of the population in Japan did not want the Olympics to occur and yet it was uh, it felt like it was jammed down their throats. So we got to ask the hard hard questions. Kurt Streeter, a sports columnist with the New York Times, thank you so much for uh, your time this morning. We'll be back right after a break talking about week one of the Tokyo Olympics. You're listening to Forum on KQED. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, what's the podcast you can't stop telling your friends about? The podcast which has you accidentally referring to its host as your friend. We want to hear your podcast recommendations, and we'll talk with critics and podcasters about theirs. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum.
Good morning. You're listening to Forum on KQED. I'm Katie Orr, and we are talking about the first week of the Tokyo Olympics with Elliot Allman, sports reporter for the Bay Area News Group. Also, Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University and co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. What do you love about the Olympics? What would you change about it? What is your reaction to the past? Last week's controversies. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I want to go to uh, Sonia now in San Jose. Go ahead. Hi, I have a question. Um, seeing that Russia was banned from the Olympics after 2016, how is it that there are so many Russian athletes at this year's Olympics? Thank you so much, Sonia. Yeah, Elliot, that was something I noticed the other day, too, because when a Russian athlete is competing, they it doesn't say, you know, from Russia. It says what something like Russian Olympic Federation or something like that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? It dovetails, thank you, Katie. It dovetails perfectly with what I wrote uh, late last night in dealing with drugs. It's th- uh, Elliot, are you there? Oh, Elliot, we lost Elliot. Uh, Amira, I wonder, uh, do you do you know about that? Can we can we speak? Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure, and uh, and I'll throw back to Elliot when he gets back on. Um, yeah, so so. Uh, you're right with this question that you're pointing at something that's in front of our eyes that feels a little weird. So there's 334 Russian athletes competing at Tokyo. Um, and the they but they're not officially representing their country because the country is banned. And so what you're seeing is the Russian Olympic Committee. That's why you see ROC when they're competing. Um, and it's, it's confusing because they're competing with their colors. They're competing with that. People are saying the Russian athletes, but technically they are not representing their country. And that is why they are there despite the ban. Now, the ban, of course, is for systemic doping abuses. And we're talking like really systemic <laughs> ones. I recommend everybody go watch Icarus. Um if you want to see some of the ways that those uh, doping abuses unfolded. Um, And so that's kind of what we're seeing there, which is that they are all over the games, um, including winning uh, a lot of medals. We saw them take the all around in gymnastics uh, um, on both sides, for instance. Um, And this is part of, um, you know, this conversation about anti-doping in WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and how they are operating. So they banned Russia um, for four years. That was re- reduced to two years. And a lot of people feel like, well, they're still basically there. You know, what is, you know, are we just like parsing it through? I think Elliot's back on now, so I can pass it back <laughs> over to him to talk more about his piece. But that's kind of what you're seeing and why it feels so discombobulating to hear they are banned, but then yet they're everywhere. Well, I do want to get into a, a comment real quick here. Allison writes, I love watching the Olympics, but find the way American coverage focuses sometimes almost exclusively on American athletes, often excluding coverage of other medal winners, even gold medal winners, is so frustrating. The Olympics is about the whole world, not just Team USA. Elliot, I understand uh, you're back with us. What are your thoughts on that? Just should, should we be focusing more on athletes from other parts of the world? I, I sure wish we would, and, and I thank the professor for saving me on the Russian question. Um, <laughs> the uh, you, Look, a Tunisian um, swimmer won a gold medal in lane six uh, 
uh, sorry, lane eight the other day, um, just out of the blue, 19 year old, it would arguably be one of the great Olympic stories out of the swim meet, um, but we, we don't cover it. You know, we, uh, it, it's even hard for the New York Times or Washington Post, you know, the national papers to do that, um, particularly local paper like ours. Our purpose is to look at the more than 100 local athletes we have and try to focus on that. But the caller is absolutely right. It's jingoistic and it's always bugged me. This is my 13th games, my 18th counting being an editor and a um, assigned uh, reporter. But uh, that's a long time and, and it's something that has really just driven me crazy because we are missing, our, our public are not getting, are not being fed just amazing stories that are going on around the world because of our nationalistic fervor. And it is interesting because some of the stories that we do see from other parts of the world have to do with controversies. For instance, Amira, um, was it the, the team from, I'm sorry, I should know, the team from the Netherlands with the um, handball team who wanted to wear a different outfit and they had to, they, they, they were told they had to wear basically bikinis. Norwegian, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So the Norwegian uh, uh, beach handball players uh, wore shorts instead of their required bikini bottoms. They were fined 150 euros for that. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. Like, I think that sometimes in in uh, the United States, when we do pick up these other stories, it's either about, say, doping or it's about the soul cap ban um, on natural hair uh, for swimming or it's about this uh, uh, Norwegian handball uniform. Um, and so we don't get that same balance of inspirational kind of tightly packaged um, narrative stories about about athletes. Um, that are not from the United States, which is why it kind of feels off balance. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, and those are part of when I refer to the mess <laughs> a few <laughs> minutes ago, these are some of the things that I'm talking about because we have, um, you know, I, I have to put this in context of uniform debates and struggles across the board. Um, my co-host Shireen Ahmed, of course, covers hijab bands and sports. And so if we can put them all together that we see that women athletes um, are fighting for bodily autonomy and we have uh, anecdotes that we can point to of people being fined for covering up, for uncovering, for wearing too much, for not wearing enough, for it to be too short, to be more short. Um, And I think that all of it kind of amounts to the way their uniforms and their bodies are policed within sport. I mean, I would just like to point to the German, um, gymnast team who to combat sexualization in in their uniforms were competing in full-length leotards that are down to their ankles um and so i think that we also had images in these games of of um athletes standing up and saying hey we're gonna actually um push back on this in in various ways we want to hear from our listeners what sports are you following and why and what do the olympics mean to you give us a call now at 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 you can also get in touch on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum or email your questions to forum at kqed 
kqed.org. Uh, we should also mention that Pink, the rock star, actually offered to pay the fine for the new Norwegian team and that the International Olympic Committee ended up uh, donating the fines, uh, $1,700 worth of fines. So, you know, trying to kind of make up, I feel like, for the bad press that they they got there. But um, Amira, you were you were just beginning to speak about this. And, and I read an article you just did in Slate where you spoke to several uh, black uh, women athletes about kind of the controversies that women and especially women of color, I shouldn't say controversies, some of the the challenges they have faced by their own, you know, like by the Olympic organizers themselves heading up into these games. It's it's interesting to me because on one hand, organizers count so much on these women to like promote the games. But on the other hand, seem to put up all these challenges for them that make competing and winning harder. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the kind of paradox that um, many of the Black women athletes were speaking to. And I, and, and, um, I talked to Black women Olympians across multiple sports, um, in sports in which they are predominantly Black, in sports in which they're predominantly white, like across the board. And one of the things that everybody was hitting on is that kind of um, tension between feeling like they were the face of the games are made to be the kind of symbolic, um, you know, always being highlighted and in these packages and things like that, but then yet being erased uh, at other moments that um, felt uh, very like hurtful um, to them. And then of course being scrutinized. Um, a lot of people were pointing of course to Shakari Richardson um, and the, the decision made around um, not her, 100 because that fell within um, her 30 her 30 day suspension for um, weed, but the decision to completely leave her off the relay pool, for instance, um, among multiple other things. Um, and they have joined along with uh, women athletes globally who have also not just challenged their federations, but the IOC for things like um, bans on nursing infants. Um, that has that they got overturned right before the games but as one spanish swimmer pointed out um it was insufficient because they were going to house her child away from her meaning she would have to break covid protocol and the bubble to go nurse multiple times a day putting her and her teammates at risk um and then most uh recently that was very appalling um was the denial of um uh Becca Myers, who's a Paralympian, a very decorated Paralympian, denying her the ability to have her mother there as a personal care assistant with the logic that a PCA was already provided for the Paralympic swimming team, which has 33 people on it. So that's one personal care assistant for 33 Olympians, 10 of whom are um, uh, blind. And that is insufficient. It's not investment in Paralympics um, and it's not equitable accommodations. And so Becca decided to not go to the games at all. Um, and so those struggles um, are absolutely infuriating and uh, many of them are, are feels like being shouldered specifically by women of color. I want to go to a caller now, Brad in Petaluma. Go ahead. Hey, I um. I was born in 1960 and I grew up watching the Olympics with my parents and we just, we watched everything. And, uh, I was a swimmer and like a lot of kids, I entertained dreams of going, but, ah, there are a lot of people faster than you, but <laughs> I became disillusioned. 
I became disillusioned um, when Dwight Stones, the high jumper, he got in trouble. Um, he was wearing, during warm-ups, he was wearing a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. And he said he thought the United States Olympic Committee was, um, they were just Mickey Mouse. They were on, they didn't take care of their athletes. And Billy the Kid, the downhill skier that won a gold medal um, in the Winter Olympics, uh when he was asked, how about um, how do you feel about winning a medal for the United States? And he said, I want it for myself. I, I haven't been helped by the United States. And just the way that athletes are used as pawns and advertising, um, I feel badly for them. And I, I want to celebrate I want to celebrate their uh, their achievements. But I, uh, I, I don't know that they can always revel in their gosh, you get third place and you're seen as a loser. That's awful. Right. I don't right. think the original Olympic ideal is not to win, but to compete. And uh, I, I, we've lost sight of that idea. I know a number of people that have made it to the Olympics, and I'm just so proud of them that they even got to that point. They, they didn't, never even made it to the finals, but we should celebrate the uh, – well, I'll leave it at that. So yeah, I, no, I, I appreciate I think, this program. Thanks, Brad. I think that's such a great call. Um, Elliot, you know, you talk about the hundreds of Bay Area athletes that you cover. And the truth is, most of them will not medal, you know, in the Olympics. So when you talk to these these athletes, what is their attitude going in, knowing that the odds of them getting on the podium are probably pretty slim? I Brad, what everything Brad said, yes. Say it again, Brad. Um, <laughs> it's it's absolutely true. And, and I actually would like to tell a little story about the Tour de France. But I'll answer your question first, Katie. Um, this is all one answer. Uh, mm-hmm. Athletes, uh, you you know, they're they're just trying to achieve their optimal performance. Um, whether that's good enough to medal or not. You, you look, as Brad said, there's always going to be somebody faster or stronger, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but just to get to this level, I, I think they keep from, this is just from generally talking to scores of these people that are, are at the games now. Um, they, they just kind of worry about what's in their zone um, and what they can control and to be, um, as long as they know that they've prepared the best that they can prepare and take and taken, you know, turned over every rock to get there in Tokyo, then they will, uh, they'll leave feeling satisfied. And, and if I, if you don't mind, wanted to tell you the story about the Tour de France in 1992. As most people know, that's the most prestigious cycling event, and it's incredibly grueling over three weeks. And I remember um, walking to the team car after a stage to talk to the Americans, and I found Davis Finney, um, a great American cyclist, just flat out shattered on the side of the road. And I said, Davis, hey, uh, are you okay? He said, yes. I said, I'll catch up with you when you get back to the team, team car. He said, no, it's okay, sit down. Um, and we just sat down. I didn't pull out my notebook. We just talked. I was worried about his health, frankly, because he was beat after a more than 100-mile race day. But, you know, it, it. the point of this, Katie, is simply that 
the fact that he was there and that he completed the Tour de France, he was in every stage for three weeks, he didn't come close to meddling um, or being on a podium. That was Greg LeMond's day. But, but he was a champion. He was, he was a champion. He survived. And, that, and that's a story that really is, resonates with all these people we're seeing at Tokyo. Whether they medal or not, they're there. They've given it their all. And we need to celebrate that. And thank you, Brad. Yeah, absolutely. I, I compared to I went to a political convention once and <laughs> I didn't do anything special or amazing coming out of it. But just the fact that like, wow, I I'm here. I'm covering a political convention. It's, it, you know, just unbelievable. Sometimes I, I feel like a lot of the athletes, most of the athletes probably are just like, wow, I am at the Olympics. <laughs> you know, I, you know, we're running really short on time. I just both of you quickly, I want to get a sense from you what uh, you're looking forward to. Amira, you know, another week of the Olympics to go. What are you what are you looking for looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, well, track and field is just uh, going, and that's uh, huge. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to see what happens there on the track. I'll be rooting for uh, a number of um, Black-owned athletes who I've profiled in that piece and who I've um, you know worked with, and and uh, that's been great. So I think track and field is there, and then also just like the conclusions of some of these team sports. Um, we're into out of the group stages now, um, so soccer is rolling on, um, volleyball women's volleyball is fantastic. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Elliot, what about you? Do we have Elliot? He may have dropped out, but I assume he's looking forward to tracking all the hundreds of Bay Area athletes that have been and will continue to compete in the uh, Tokyo Olympics. We've been talking about week one of the Tokyo Olympics with Elliot Allman, sports reporter for the Bay Area News Group, and Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor at Penn State University and co-host of the podcast, Burn It All Down. Also, we spoke earlier with Kurt Streeter of the New York Times. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.